When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Iyad Hosami, a host of the channel. I have a background in theater, beekeeping, cultural management, and urbanism research, and I lived and worked for more than a decade in Lebanon. Currently, I'm developing a musical theater project, and I'm a postgraduate researcher. My doctoral research project in the Ecological Humanities at the University of Leeds is supported by a UK Arts and Humanities Research Council Fellowship through the White Rose College of the Arts and Humanities. Today, we'll be talking to Kate Rigby about her new book, Reclaiming Romanticism Towards an Ecopoetics of Decolonization. Kate, could you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Yes, thank you very much. Um, okay, so um, I'm a professor of environmental humanities at Bath Spa University in the UK. Um, I'm also adjunct professor at Monash University in Australia, where I worked for many years previously. Um, I have a background in German studies and comparative literature and uh, began working in the field that has now become known globally as the environmental humanities. In the late 1990s, um, I uh, was a member of a small multidisciplinary national working group on the ecological humanities, as we called it, which formed um, around 2000. Um, and I uh, ended up being um, the founding president of the Association of Study of Literature and Environment Australia New Zealand, which is now um, Literature, Environment and Culture. Um, so my, my sort of home discipline is literary and cultural studies, but um, I've also engaged very closely with um, eco-philosophy, environmental ethics, and uh, religion and ecology. Um, and my work has quite a sort of historical leaning, um, as well as engaging with contemporary uh, literatures and contexts and concerns. 
Wonderful. Thank you for that nice introduction. And so tell us how you came to write um, Reclaiming Romanticism. What's what's the origin story of this book? Well, the book's actually been brewing for many years um, and it brings together uh, work that I'd been doing on romanticism um, over, you know, over some considerable period, took me back to the territory of an earlier monograph on German and British poetics and philosophies of nature and place, topographies of the sacred, but within a new context um, and in particular worsening um, ecological or socio-ecological crisis, um, the challenge of decolonization but also the turnaround in the historical and literary critical evaluation of romanticism um, from a, a positive road not taken to a dead end that's contributed to contemporary woes. And I think that men, many of these kind of critiques of romanticism have been valid and important, and indeed I sort of, in a way, I was contributing to them um, in uh, Topographies of the Sacred. But... Um, I think that they've they've led to what I consider to be a rather ahistorical and sort of reductive blanket condemnation um, of romanticism, the use of kind of romantic as a dirty word. Um, and so this book actually joins a number of other recent publications by eco-critical scholars of romanticism who are pushing back against what we see as a, a mischaracterization of the legacy of European romanticism in particular, um, and especially in its first heyday in Britain and the German region around 1800. So specifically, um, in Reclaiming Romanticism, what I've endeavoured to do is locate a number of points of departure within particular strands of European Romanticism for an eco-poetics of decolonisation. And so I'm not kind of claiming to talk about romanticism per se, um, because it's a really heterogeneous phenomenon and contradictory phenomenon. But I'm just really wanting to kind of push back it against some of these kind of um, very negative, hostile um, uh, constructions of romanticism. And to bring romanticism into conversation with the um, poetry and also environmental praxis of contemporary North American and Australian writers and activists. So it's concerned with a kind of um, a, a positive re-inheritance, if you like, um, of romanticism, which also means a kind of creative and, and potentially also critical reimagining of romanticism. Yes, I was taken by how you repurpose um, these inheritances. I feel that that's a major thrust of the book. And I guess that corresponds with kind of an excavation. Um, and the idea of excavation kind of emerges already in your introduction, <laughs> where you propose the term Plautocene. And I was struck by how you analyze the potential of this term alongside other terms um, that the ge geologists, the media, and scholars have coined and propagated to describe the era of ecological crisis, whose beginning, be it steam engine, fossil fuel acceleration, or way earlier with the use of fire, is often contested. So what's the story of this term, Plautocene, and why is it relevant to your book? 
Great, thank you. Well, look, I have to admit that that it is partially playful. You know, um, humanities scholars are are great at proliferating terms, and there's already uh, you know qu- quite a um, a number of alternative terms to the Anthropocene. The the serious aspect of it um, is that I actually share the. the sort of widespread concern that scholars in humanities and social sciences have expressed with respect to the coinage Anthropocene, um, you know, to refer to kind of the profound and long-lasting transformations of Earth systems because um, it attributes these changes to a sort of amorphous anthropos, a collective human actor. And in doing so, it veils huge discrepancies um, in terms of both culpability for and vulnerability to these changes. So this is why, you know, I'm, I'm joining, I'm joining the, the, um, the gang of people looking for kind of alternatives. With respect to the timing um, of these changes, I'm prepared to accept the emerging scientific consensus that they become visible kind of globally as something that's going to be in the geological record only from the mid-20th century, um, initially with fallout from nuclear um, testing and war, and then a whole mass of changes associated with the so-called great acceleration of industrialization and its impacts um, in the post-war period. But prior to that, you've got a series of of, of kind of turning points, if you like, really crucial developments that made this all possible. And as you say, you know, right back, if you'd like, to the human mastery of fire, but also including, for example, what Donna Haraway um, and it's seeing termed the plantation scene beginning in the 17th century. And this is, this is a term that I also find really helpful. But it seems to me that the most immediate enabling condition for the Great Acceleration was fossil-fueled capitalist industrialization and initially using steam engines burning coal, um, which is why Crutzen and Sturmer suggested that James Watt's um, invention of the steam engine in 1784 could be a kind of, you know, a marker for the beginning of the Anthropocene. And it's, of course, from this point that CO2 levels um, began to rise and that this rise is traceable as one of the signals of the so-called Anthropocene. Um, And so I'm also particularly interested in this this particular moment because it coincides with the emergence of Romanticism in Britain and Germany and not, not coincidentally. Um, because, you know, the romantics are responding to um, the, the, the scientific and technological revolutions that are, um, that, that are enabling this, um, this industrial transformation of the earth that's just beginning, uh, particularly in Britain uh, in this period. And so I take the term Plautocene, I take it, it's inspired by um, the, a poem by the early British Romantic poet Anna Seward. It's a poem, Colebrookdale, in which the speaker laments that the genius of the brook, um, the genius loci of the brook that flowed through this once picturesque valley in Colebrookdale had been, as she puts it, by Plutus bribed because it's been sacrificed. The valley has been sacrificed in the production of wealth from the world's first coal-powered iron foundry. 
So I, I'm playing in the, the coining of this term, I'm playing on the ambig, ambiguity of Plutus, which in Greek is Plautus, the god of wealth, and Plauton, who was the Greek god of the underworld. So I'm proposing the Plautocene as the era in which the realm of the dead, literally the remains of ancient plant and marine life, has been exhumed and has invaded Earth's critical zone. So it's an era in which the wealth pursued by plutocrats has been garnered at an intolerable cost to the wider collective of the living Earth. Okay, maybe as we move into the realm of the living, moving forth into the light of things, um, we can discuss uh, one of your chapters titled Come Forth into the Light of Things, Contemplative Ecopoetics. There you write, it is in the horizon of the contemporary theorization and instantiation of contemplative ecology that I want to resituate Wordsworth's ecopoetics project. Please tell us more about your interest in William Wordsworth and this resituation. Okay, so one of the targets of what I consider to be um, an ahistorical and reductive critique of Romanticism is the role of frequently solitary contemplation of natural phenomena or natural cultural uh, places um, that are typically rural, they're not. Uh, necessarily wilderness as tends to be more the case in American romanticism um, and sometimes the urban places as well but this this um, sort of stance a solitary contemplation often solitary walking um, is is critiqued um, often with reference to Keats rather unkind comment on Wordsworth's allegedly egotistical sublime um, and I, I think this is um, is a is a mischaracterization of what's going on here. So I sort of um, seek to uh, reposition this um, stance and this trope historically um, in terms of the long history of traditions of contemplation, um, you know, the, going right back to the um, eccentric desert fathers and mothers, um, you know, of fourth century who, who rejected um, the, the imperial world of Rome and withdrew to uh, sort of, I suppose, commune with the divine um, in very countercultural ways um, in, um, it, within the natural world. Um, and this, these traditions of contemplation uh, have counterparts in other cultures. And I think that um, they become important within Romanticism and specifically, I think, explicitly in Wordsworth, but also you can see it elsewhere, as a, a mode of resistance to the growing prevalence of objectifying and instrumentalizing attitudes and practices. So the construction of nature primarily as an object of human knowledge and an exploitable resource um, rather than as a kind of collective of more than human entities with which humans are intimately interconnected and indeed in some cases as a locus of, of inherent or transcendent value as, as holy or as theophanic as, 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 um, as 
a, a a space, a place within which you know a trace of the divine is is revealed. And um, Rousseau's Reveries of a Solitary Walker from 1780 was was really um, influential in terms of this kind of recuperation and reconfiguring of um, of the um, of the Christian inheritance of, of contemplation. So, um, so in this con- connection, I contemplate a pair of conversation by poem, uh, conversation poems by Wordsworth, which appeared in the lyrical ballads, um, the expostulation and reply, and the tables turned. They seem to be really simple um, little lyrics, but I think they're philosophically quite uh, profound, and they constitute a kind of poetic manifesto um, for Wordsworth's, Wordsworth's project. So in the first of these, um, the um, the uh, figure um, uh, who's named as Matthew upbraids his friend William for sitting around all day, um, sort of daydreaming, staring at a lake, um, instead of devoting himself to book learning, um, it specifically imbibing the spirit breathed from dead men to their kind. Um to which the latter, William, responds that he's seeking an alternative kind of mental or spiritual nourishment by cultivating what he calls a wise passiveness and looking out, you know, beyond the pages of of exclusively human texts written by dead men um, and attending instead to what he calls the mighty sum of things forever speaking. And in the second poem, The Tables Turned, William um, endeavours to coax his bookish friend outside into what he calls the light of things. And um, I really love this phrase. It's a sort of classically Wordsworthy and swerve away from, from, from what you expected, like you you expect the, you know, the light of day or something like that. But, no, it's the light of things. And so it's just a, this this little kind of swerve from the expected kind of trips you up as you're reading along, and it makes you slow down and um, and actually contemplate the poem itself as a phenomenon that resists ready comprehension, just as the figure within the poem, William, is kind of um, opening himself up um, to the sort of ungraspable dimension um, of the the world beyond the page. So, and then at, at the end of that poem, uh, uh, the the phrase "come forth into the light of things" is repeated. Then, with um, this addition, "bring with you a heart that watches and receives," and and this is the kind of contemplative attitude, um, which involves um, a kind of self self emptying, a stilling of the mind, a stilling of thoughts, um, and um, a, a kind of attempt to kind of open yourself up to be drawn beyond yourself so it's it, it's it's not <laughs> egotistical it's actually about self-emptying in fact um, and allowing yourself to be addressed allowing yourself to be surprised by something uh, from from beyond yourself and nor is it really sublime um, I really love the, the the book by Louisa Conobides on the ecology of wonder in romantic and postmodern literature and she's got a chapter on Wordsworth where she shows how um, Wordsworth's poetics um, are actually don't privilege the sublime but they they're concerned with with this experience of kind of 
wonderment and wondering, which is also wondering about things, approaching things um, with a sense of wonder rather than trying to kind of pin them down, um, make them reveal themselves fully, allowing for them to be mysterious and surprising. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I find this um, particularly interesting to to bring into conversation with um, the work of Douglas Christie um, in his book, The Blue Sapphires of the Mind Towards a Contemplative Ecology, which, which um, gives a really detailed kind of explication of the specifically kind of Christian tradition of contemplation and um, thinks it through in terms of, you know, how we confront um, a world in crisis um, in, in a kind of in a contemplative mode. Um, but I also um, emphasise that um, that Wordsworth's um, Wordsworth's uh, stance in these poems is actually it's non-theistic um, and it's not about kind of communicating communing with with God in creation, but actually co- it, it, communing with creatures, with with, with things. Um, um, human and, and non-human, um, animate and inanimate, the rock he's sitting on, the lake he's looking at. Um, so it's about, um, uh, it, it's not, you know, necessarily in, in a kind of religious framework. And so I also resituate this um, was worthy in contemplative eco-poetics through uh, secular, um, contemporary secular lines of thought, and in particular, Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter and Stephen Shaviro's Speculative Realism, um, particularly where he talks um, about drawing on, on Harman's work on, um, on the aesthetic encounter. Um, and um, returning to, to the Wordsworth poems, I think it's also important to note the, the knowing irony um, in the speaker's call to his interlocutor to close up those barren leaves, i.e. the books that he's reading, which is also, of course, a call to the reader mediated by just such barren leaves. So, you know, he, he knows that, that he's making this call to, to kind of go forth into the light of things um, and lay aside your book um, in a medium um, that will find its readers in book form. So I read this as a sort of tacit acknowledgement that that this cultivation um, of a heart that watches and receives is actually is is a cultural achievement. Um, And this implies also that sort of no encounter with things in their, you know, elusive radiance, if you like, is ever entirely pure. So we always bring a stack of prior experiences, memories, ideas, assumptions, etc. with us. So part of the work of contemplation um, is to be conscious about about this, to become aware of that. So there's a self-reflexive moment um, whilst at the same time kind of opening ourselves up to the unexpected. So, um, yeah, I mean, the point is not to argue that this is the only way we should relate to things or write about our relations with things. Um, this is just the first chapter of the book. It's a portal, if you like. It's a way in. Um, and the, the the point is to say that this is a starting point, if you like, for more respectful, attentive, self-reflexive mode uh, of being in the world um, that should inform everything else that, that we say and do. And 
um, in the English-speaking reception of uh, Buddhist practice, it's called mindfulness. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where I get to with that. These notions of self-reflexivity and allowing oneself to be addressed by things um, also emerges in contemporary poetry in your first chapter. You bring to the fore contemporary Canadian poet Tim Lilburn quite prominently in your discussion, and you cite his conceptualization of decolonization, which I'm going to take the liberty to read. Tim Lilburn writes, the renovation of Western philosophy required to imagine a post-imperial world cannot be achieved by invention, but only by a retrieval of lost cultural parts. It will entail the resuscitation of a larger version of the self, deepened interiority that is sustained by conversation with a range of interlocutors, not all of them human. What does justice now ask of us? and as cases of contemplative acts, which offers no strategic efficiency, yet nevertheless contains within itself the germ of the sole durable politics. So my question for you then is, how do you engage Lilburn and his linking between Escasis and what he calls durable politics. And I'm also curious about the role or absence or question um, of class and the role that class plays in his claim. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a big claim, isn't it? <laughs> I, I kind of immediately want to qualify it. So the, the, the first thing to note is um, Lilburn's expression, germ, the germ of a durable politics. So again, to kind of reiterate, you know, what I've just said, that contemplative praxis is not the end but the beginning or it's the underpinning for political engagement within, and in this case, within the horizon of an ethics of decolonisation. So um, it's not a substitute for, for, you know, for other forms of political engagement, but it's something that should inform and underpin our political engagement. And, uh, you know, as I've already suggested with reference to Douglas Christie's work, um, contemplation is not only directed towards, you know, the beautiful or the, or the you know, the pleasurable, but also the, the terrible, the utterly terrible. And um, it can and indeed needs to include contemplation of devastated country and devastated communities. And again, we, we, can, we, can, see, we can see this in Wordsworth in his lines written in early spring where the speaker's contemplation of the apparent enjoyment in their own existence of the plants, insects and birds that he's witnessing leads to a deepened sense of wrong with respect to social injustices, what man has made of man. So in the context of decolonisation, it surely entails contemplating the colonial ravaging of country and communities and, and with that, a deep listening to what Indigenous peoples are saying about their history, their present and their hopes for the future, and also an endeavour to understand their different way of, ways of understanding things, you know, in technical terms, epistemology, ontology and ethics. Um, and, in fact, Lilburn um, has been doing this himself by endeavouring to learn um, an Indigenous language, the Sarnich language, um, 
And with that, to sort of understand the, the, the different ways in which the world speaks through that language um, and also the cultural horizon within which um, the human kind of language and verbalizations is understood as in some sense kind of continuous with the verbalizations of the more than human world. Again, I have to say I'm reminded of Wordsworth, some of things forever speaking. Um, but I think what Lilburn is also pointing here to here is that in the context of settler colonial nations such as Canada or indeed Australia, my own context, overcoming hegemonic relations between sort of colonising and colonised peoples and cultures needs to be viewed through an intersectional lens, uh, uh, indeed attentive to relations of gender, class, sexuality, but also hegemonic, the hegemonic dimension of human non-human relations within the dominant settler culture. So hence his call for a wider conversation with diverse interlocutors, not all of them human. And um, in the book that you've just quoted from, Lubin observes um, that, that Europe came maimed to North America. Um, and um, this is certainly true um, in Australia as well. And he goes on to say, specifically, beholden, and this is a quote now, to a sort of reasoning that Val Plumwood, um, Australian feminist um, eco-philosopher, um, that Val Plumwood called hyper-rationality which he terms the cognitive lymph of turbo-capitalism. And so it's for this reason he maintains a work of decolonization from the side of the colonizer entails both, you know, recognizing past wrongs and continuing social injustice and ecological damage, but also the recovery of suppressed counter-traditions. And in particular, he's interested in uh, and engaged with um, contemplative practices. Um, I think very much, you know, in the sense that that, that Wordsworth and, and, um, and other romantics looked to these practices as a mode of resistance to the instrumental rationality that construes the colonial earth as property to be disposed of at will and a resource to be exploited to the to the hilt. Um, and um, so um, what I actually end up saying <laughs> in the book, um, uh, which is a was a kind of an impetus very much kind of all along for me, um, is that um, I, I, I feel with with Lilburn, that these, these European counter-traditions um, are something that non-Indigenous people can actually bring to the table in order to potentially open up some common ground with First Peoples, you know, because otherwise we come empty-handed saying, oh, we want, your, we want your mythology, we want your ontology. Instead we can say, well, look, um, you know, um, We've 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 also got um, some traditions that, that that maybe we can kind of bring into conversation, and we can we can we can share uh, develop some shared understandings, um, and so it becomes a kind of a site from which to kind of renegotiate our relations with one another and with other with other with other others, um, and including what the first peoples of, of Turtle Island refer to as kindred, uh, plant and animal nations. So to the question of class, um, this is interesting. Um, there, so first thing to say is there are different traditions of contemplation 
even within Christianity and certainly um, cross-culturally. And I don't feel that contemplative praxis per se is, is, is actually strongly tied to class in any way, except to the extent that historically it's actually been associated with voluntary poverty. Um, but, you know, it's something that anyone can do anywhere, anytime. And there is, of course, a corporate face to it these days, um, you know, practice meditation so you can be more effective in the workplace and make more money and all that sort of thing. Um, but it also has a countercultural and, and indeed an eco-political face. Um, so I talk about the, um, the the importance of contemplative practices, um, je- typically framed um, in um, kind of a more Buddhist sense as mindfulness, it's now recognised as crucial to what's being called inner transition or inner transformation um, towards sustainability. So, for example, in the, um, in the transition town movement, but these contemplative practices, um, cultivation of mindfulness, um, it are also being incorporated into activist movements. Um, and um, since I published the book, I've been sort of engaging uh, a bit more with Extinction Rebellion and actually specifically um, the um, Christian Climate Action, which is kind of Christian um, group within Extinction Rebellion, um, who are also... Connected up with with um, people of other faiths within Extinction Rebellion in what's called a faith bridge, a kind of interfaith group within Extinction Rebellion, and um, there, you know, the um, practice these contemplative practices entailing, you know, self examination, um, acknowledging you know, but not being driven by anger, fear, grief, etc. not assuming that you have all the answers, not demonising the other side, um, endeavouring to love your neighbour, cultivating a kind of, um, you know, a place of peace within yourself from which to resist non-violently. Um, this is really, it's really important training for, um, for non-violent direct action. So... Um, so you know, I, I see this as 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 again, you know, again, something that is um, a, a kind of preparation, if you like, a kind of really crucial way of developing um, a, a mode of comportment um, um, that is essential for other you know forms of political engagement. Okay. Maybe we can move to uh, chapter two and effective ecopoetics. There, the idea of transcorporeality is central. How do you understand that idea and what do you seek to uncover through such an investigation? Well, I should say, first of all, that um, this is not my coinage. Uh, coinage. So transcorporeality was, um, is a, uh, proposed by Stacey Lamo um, and explored in her really important 2010 book, Bodily Nature, Science, the Environment and the Material Self. And um, Alemo uses this term to highlight the inequitable distribution of environmental harms, particularly pertaining to the passage of, of, of toxins through the semi-permeable, per, semi-permeable membrane of human skin and the gastrointestinal t- tract. I'm using the term differently um, to explore 
the affective aspect of transcorporeality. And this was of particular interest to Romantic era writers, philosophers, and indeed physicians who were um, looking at the way in which the physical qualities of things, of environments, times of day, times of year, as perceived through the sensate human body, impinge upon our sensibility, mood and state of mind. And, of course, one of those was Keats, John Keats, um, who himself had medical training. And um, in this chapter I I look at um, the, the the way that um, that Keats uh, invokes the affective experience of, of seasonal change in his uh, in his famous ode um, to autumn, um, and there's a connection here with contemplative practice because. Um, it can also engender a deepened appreciation of the bodily dimensions of our own being. So it, it in, involves kind of asking yourself, hmm, how am I feeling in this space at this time? Um, and in this way, it also sort of pushes back against, um, if you like, raciocentric constructions of the human subject as a quasi-disembodied mind immune to environmental influences. So it's about incorporating our corporeality and therefore also our environmentality, the way that we are um, affected by the spaces and places that we find ourselves in, incorporating this into our sense of self. So this is a sort of material um, phenomenology of transcorporeality um, and it's informed by the ecological um, aesthetics of the German environmental philosopher Gernot Böhmer, um, which I've written about um, on several occasions previously, in fact, um, including um, in the book that I co-edited with Axel Goodbody um, on um, European um, uh, eco-critical theory and European um, philosophy. So Burma's ecological aesthetics turns on the phenomenon of what he calls atmosphere, um, which is the the medium in which we experience um, our environs, if you like, on an, an affective level. Uh, and, you know, we use this term in everyday speech, don't we say, oh, it's a strange atmosphere in here. So Burma wants to take this really seriously <laughs> through a kind of material uh, phenomenological lens. But he also maintains that uh, poetic language um, is capable of evoking these sort of um, atmospheric experiences um, through language, through particularly sensuous imagery including uh, culturally recognised verbal insignia, as he, he terms them, that call to mind and thereby also kind of summon in the flesh the mood-altering atmospheres associated with, for example, particular times of day or times of year. Um, so... Previously, I've kind of been resistant to the proposition that these um, intextual atmospheres could invoke um, similar effective responses to in situ experiences of atmosphere. But I've been persuaded by um, 
my wonderful um, fellow eco-critics such as Alexa Bike von Mostner, that in fact, um, there is really something in this. So um, this is... Um, the, these uh, um, Alexa looks at um, research in neurolinguistics, which provides both empirical evidence and an explanation for how words can actually, you know, invoke feelings, sensations, um, moods that you may experience, um, uh, you know, in in a particular. Uh, context in a particular situation um, through the uh, the mirror neurons which are involved in empathy and um, I actually had a conversation with a lecturer about this recently I think it's um, it's I think that this in part is precisely what the romantics referring to um, under the rubric of imagination um, which they too recognize had a bodily basis um, so yeah, so, so in my discussion of um, effective ecopoetics, I, um, I particularly focus in on the literary invocation of transcorporeal affects arising from weather and seasonality um, because in, it, it enables us to kind of reflect upon the disjunction between our seasonal expectations and the weird weather of a warming world. So this is like the kind of phenomenological <laughs> dimension, if you like, of um, of anthropogenic weather weirding. Um, and then more generally, also how can I consider how this affective dimension of transcorporeality is involved in experiences um, of well-being, or indeed the reverse, in particular kinds of environment. Um, and there I do um, also very much engage with questions of, of class um, and other um, diversities um, because it opens on to eco-political questions about who has or who does not have access to places and spaces conducive to a sense of well-being. Thank you. Now I suggest we move to uh, the U.S., uh, American, Black American, German American, Berlin American. Um, I think many places, nations uh, claim Audre Lorde. Mm -hmm. She and her 1997 poem, The Bees, stand out in your book, which is primarily concerned with the British Commonwealth and European culture. In fact, you produce her poem, The Bees in Full, which now I will read for our listeners for discussion. In the street outside a school, what the children learn possesses them. Little boys yell as they stone a flock of bees, trying to swarm between the lunchroom window and an iron grate. The boys sling furious rocks, smashing the windows. The bees, buzzing their anger, are slow to attack. Then one boy is stung into quicker destruction, and the school guards come, long wooden sticks held out before them. They advance upon the hive, beating the almost finished rooms of wax apart, mashing the new tunnels in while fresh honey drips down their broomsticks and the little boy feet becoming expert in destruction trample the remaining and bewildered bees into the earth. 
curious and apart. Four little girls look on in fascination, learning a secret lesson and trying to understand their own destruction. One girl cries out, Hey, the bees weren't making any trouble. And she steps across the feebly buzzing ruins to peer up at the empty grated nook. We could have studied honey making. <laughs> so what is noteworthy about this poem, Kate? <laughs> well, just hearing you read it, um, again, I'm sort of struck what a harrowing poem it is. Um, so... Yes, I discuss Lord um, alongside a contemporary African American woman poet, Natasha Trith in my chapter on creaturely ecopoetics, and this is where I very much engage with the with the concept of the plantation scene. Um, so I'll just say a few words about what I mean by creaturely ecopoetics, and I'll come back to the plantation scene because that's really why we why I turn to the US here and particularly to um, African American poetry. So um, creaturely ecopoetics um, highlights human entanglements which I see as both material and moral with other living beings and these entanglements entail shared if unevenly distributed vulnerabilities as well as shared if variegated communicative capacities and these entanglements as I think we see very profoundly in the Lord poem, harbour the ever-present risk of conflict and harm. But also, as we see in the inter inter interjection of the little girls, opportunities to co-create emergent multi-species worlds no longer constrained by the colonising logic, uh, you know, as I've discussed it in the previous chapters, of human-non-human hyper-separation and may be free to sort of explore um, what I call more felicitous forms of coexistence in risky times. So as I say, it's in this connection, um, I turn my attention to the um, co-becoming of humans and bees along with the plants they pollinate. Of course, this has a very, very long history in um, European poetry, right back to um, classical pastoral and, um, and Georgic poetry. But um, in the Romantic period, um, I look at the work of John Clare and a couple of pair of bee poems by, by John Clare, viewed in the horizon of the plantation scene. So just say a, a few words to explain that, if that's um, an unfamiliar term for some lis listeners. So it predates and enables what I'm calling the Plodocene. Um, and as um, Haraway and Singh um, frame it, it kicks off in the 16th century um, uh, with what Haraway um, describes as the devastating transformation of diverse kinds of human-tended farms, pastures and forests into extract extractive and enclosed plantations, relying on slave labour and other forms of exploited, alienated and usually spatially transported labour. So the enclosure of the commons, which was kind of a really crucial experience um, and a catastrophic experience in, in Claire's life, um, 
back home in England, um, it, you know, has its kind of counterpart in the colonies um, in the appropriation of Indigenous lands and um, the enslavement um, of um, of Africans um, typically to work uh, on these plantations. And so this is why I then turn to what I see as a creature eco-poetics of um, the descendants of this enslaved Africans um, to find a, a counterpart um, for, for Claire's. So um, Lord's poem is included in um, Camille um, Dungy's wonderful collection of African-American nature poetry, and um, it appears in a section called Dirt on Our Hands, um, highlighting, quote, the barriers that have been established between humans and natural world, encouraging destruction and disaffection, discouraging cooperative thinking, and eventually ushering in certain trauma and death. And I'm particularly struck uh, by the resonance between this poem and the sonnet by Claire called Wild Bee's Nest, which also depicts the ravaging of a bee's nest in, in um, strongly gendered and also implicitly sexualized terms. So in Lord's poem, the image of the fresh honey that drips down their broomsticks is, is metonymic of wastage, you know, all that she really emphasizes these, these bees, this um, uh, female community, not insignificantly for Lord, um, who've been busily creating their, 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 new, uh, their new nest has been laid to waste, but there's also perhaps a kind of um, um, metaphor of of rape there as well. So Lord kind of, she leaves us to wonder about the source of the the fear and and hostility underlying the boy's um, aggressive reaction to the swarming bees. but it focuses instead on the perspective of the four girls who look, look in on fascination. And we discover, I suppose, in the second stanza that it's they who are the subject of the opening line in the street outside a school, what the children learn possesses them. And what the girls are trying to understand in view of this display of, of masculine aggression towards the other um, the denial of the bees' agency, the negation of their efforts to craft a new abode is their own destruction or potential destruction because, of course, viewed in the context of Lord's womanist uh, politics, there's clearly an implied call for resistance here. But also perhaps to forge an alternative um, way of being, embracing multiple differences, including that of species. So I, th- I find this poem sort of interesting in terms of uh, an intersectionality um, um, which brings together um, gender, possibly race, although that's that's backgrounded here, uh, certainly certainly gender um, and, and species as well. But I have to say that from a contemporary perspective, I actually find the Trithui poem that I discussed, Carpenter Bee, Carpenter Bee, um, more complex eco-politically and also far more disturbing because it doesn't involve intentional destruction, it's outright, you know, aggression and violence, but rather it highlights how the everyday homemaking efforts 
of a woman of colour, moreover, so one whom we have to assume bears her own history of domination and displacement on the basis of race, possibly also gender. Her, just her perfectly ordinary homemaking efforts in unhoused and imperil this other than human neighbour or neighbour. So in this case, it's just a single bee in her brood. Um, the bee has burrowed into the wood um, um, of her balcony and uh, and created a nest in there and she's brought in the pest control people to uh, to, to, to block it up. Um, but, you know, it's possible to, to sort of scale this up to a consideration of how, for example, you know, the purchase of a virtuously non-dairy almond milk might make you complicit in toxic monocultures. And, um, you know, this is how the plantation scene continues to, to unfold in the present. Um, and both wild bees and honeybees are um, a victim um, to to these toxic monocultures. So, yeah, Carpenter Bee is this is this is our situation where like so perfectly kind of ordinary things can can have really terrible kind of consequences at a distance and in complex ways. Leaving the bees behind, we will turn now to William Blake, and you write about Blake the mythic poetic potential of literature to propel cultural revolution was widely championed during the Romantic period. In that context, you present Blake as one of the few Romantic era writers in the UK or in Europe to come close to the spinning of new mythologies and new revelations against dogma, against scientific mechanism, against tyranny. Can you elaborate? Thank you. Yeah. So um, the, the the call for for a new mythology, a mytho an enlightened mythology, or even a mythology of reason, um, you, it was kind of quite widespread. But it was most explicit um, in this strange, strange little text. Um, um, that is written in Hegel's handwriting, but uh, almost certainly as a co-production by Hegel um, and his um, contemporary philosopher Schelling and also the poet, the writer Hölderlin, they were students together. Um, and they wrote this, uh, they simply written this, this little essay called The Oldest System Program of German Idealism and that the, um, the manuscript dates from 1796. So this wasn't widely, widely known, but the ideas certainly were widely circulating. And um, it involves the, the recognition of the importance of the Enlightenment questioning of, you know, previous taken for granted, including very much religious dogma. Um, and actually, just as an aside, I should say, I mean, one of the long-standing misconstructions of Romanticism is that it's somehow kind of irrationalist and kind of anti-enlightenment. Um, I don't think it is, um, but it is a you could almost say it's a kind of a radicalization of certain enlightenment ideas as well as a kind of counter you know offers kind of counter positions to certain aspects of the enlightenment so there's a sort of you know uh, um uh, an uh, an acceptance of the importance of of this questioning of dogma but also the need for 
sort of compa- compelling narratives um, um, uh, informed by new understandings of the natural world and of human subjectivity, but narratives that um, are able to sort of engage people um, on the level of level of imagination and affect and also bring in ethical considerations. So this is the idea of a kind of a new mythology, um, new enlightened mythology that that um, these intellectuals, you know, hoped that um, that that new kinds of literature might might be able to provide. Um, I have to say that um, you know this is something that we hear a lot today as well, isn't it? You know, we need new narrative and, and um, so on. Um, and I, I think this is true. But but um, um, I one thing that's sort of been really important for me in my own sort of um, intellectual formation is um, Max Weber's analysis of um, the Protestant work ethic and and its sort of uptake um, within Protestantism. And one of the things that Weber points out is that that, um, similar kind of critiques um, of, you know, Catholic, um, uh, you know, abuses as he saw them um, and um, arguments about, you you know, everybody should be able to, um, read the Bible for themselves and make their own sense of it. They'd actually been around for a while, and it was only when you had a kind of group in society for whom these ideas made sense in terms of the way of life that it gets taken up. So, you know, we, we can't just rely, we can't rely on literature, uh, we can't rely on on, on narratives. Um, we, we need to look at the kind of material um, socio-ecological transformations that make it possible for people to become receptive <laughs> to uh, to the new mythologies. So I think I depart a little bit from um, from the romantics from that perspective who, who really did um, um, have high hopes for um, the way that um, you know trans that, that a kind of revolutionary literature could could bring about social transformation. I don't think it's that straightforward. But nonetheless, coming back to this question, of Blake. So there are various kind of versions of this of, of this project of the kind of um, mythopoetic project um, of of um, the Romantic period. Often involved reworking earlier myths. Um, so Shelley's Prometheus Unbound um, would be a, um, a rather stunning case in point. But what is really extraordinary in, in Blake um, is that he actually sort of invents um, a whole new mythology. So he is a mythographer who who creates these kind of new mythic figures. For example, in in the Four Zoas um, um, manuscripts from 1790, we have these um, four the fourfold um, that kind of got separated. Um, Urizen connected with reductive or calculative rationality and social convention, Orthona or Los connected with inspiration, imagination, Tamas, instinct, force, Luva, or Orkin and other manifestations, kind of love and passion. Um, and um, so... Um, so yes, yeah, so so Blake Blake is a mythographer in his own in, in his own right. But what particularly or also interests me in great, in Blake's work um, is what what he is doing with this um, with this mythography, um, and I see it as a um, a, a kind of extension um, of the 
biblical, prophetic and apocalyptic tradition. Um, and you know, it's almost certainly informed by Jewish and, and Christian uh, mystical writing, uh, but also by a new biblical scholarship which resituated the scriptures as, um, you know, as historically kind of located and culturally contingent and poetically crafted works of literature as a sort of open-ended, so the Bible is, is, is reconceived, um, particularly by German uh, biblical scholars and those who are kind of engaging with biblical scholarship like Friedrich Schlegel um, as, a, as an open-ended anthology. And it's open-ended not only on the level of interpretation but also in the sense that more books could be added to it. Um, so the, the Bible's not a closed book, <laughs> if you like. It's an open, open-ended anthology. Um, and this is, ex- in fact, how um, the really, really important um, Theologian, biblical scholar Friedrich Schleiermacher um, comments on the Bible and he talks on religion to its cultured despisers. So, Blake, um, for Blake, the role of the prophet was twofold, and this is really very much profoundly um, indebted to the Hebrew Hebraic conception of the of the of the prophet, um, as you know we see it um, in what Christians call the First Testament. So the role of the prophet was twofold. So to lament and to warn, uh, Blake says, you know, if so, then so. You know, if we continue down this path, then things are going to get really bad indeed. Uh, To lament, to to warn, to sort of amplify, if you like, or lift up, you know, the, the, the cry of the oppressed, but also to hold open the vision of a just and peaceable future. So one of the, the um, shorter um, texts of Blake that I ponder here is um, is his Auguries of Innocence, which hints at the entanglement of different kinds of wrongs, if you like. So cruelty to animals and social injustices. You know how a robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage is interrelated um, with, you know, the babe that weeps the rod beneath, the beggar's rags, the harlot's cry, and the plight, the plight of the poor and those pressed into military service. Um, and, again, very much in keeping with the, um, the Hebrew prophets such as Jeremiah, Blake is amplifying both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, and he's doing so very consciously in the context of capitalist industrialization and imperialist expansion and anticipating how the failure to respond to these injustices could lead to um, what he calls the desolated earth that he prefigures in in his epic uh, poem Milton. And what I think is also interesting and important to stress is that Blake's redemptive vision um, actually entails a reconciliation of science and poetry, reason and imagination, which which kind of resonates um, with this older system program. So in Jerusalem, he envisages envisages a sort of ecotopian city, um, the new Jerusalem, Golgonuza. It's a commonwealth of love in which the creatures of the earth too have been liberated from human tyranny. And um, hovering above this, we see, you know, the erstwhile targets of his critique, um, Bacon, Newton and Locke, 
uh, appear together with Chaucer, Shakespeare and Milton. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 the romantic um, mythopoetic project was very much about reconciling um, reason and imagination science and poetry, not of setting, you know, the latter up against the former. Thank you. Moving now from prophecy to decoloniality, I'd like to read an excerpt from Kumbilor, Hill in My Country, by contemporary Wiradjuri poet Janine Lane, who features in chapter five of your book. The poem begins. I come back and see a hill, barren, cleared of trees, sectioned by fences, like a checkerboard of games won and lost, only the rocks, anchored so deep they cannot be moved, remain. A dry creek bed, thirsty for a long time. Now faded stones, no longer shining sharp, rounded what has passed. Could you tell us about this poet and how the histories of displacement, genocide, and ecocide, as well as the promise of decolonial resistance, reverberate in her work. Thank you. Um, so lovely to hear Janine's work um, recited here. So as you say, she is a contemporary um, Wiradjuri poet and scholar from New South Wales. She actually grew up uh, on a sheep station near Gundagai, uh, which is a small town that's the most, among the most celebrated in 19th century settler Australian bush ballads and also country and western songs. And she tells us she was raised by her grandmother and two aunts. So she's written a really d delightful but also, of course, challenging partly autobiographical um, collection of rural yarns, as she puts it, called Purple Threads. Uh, where um, we, we get a little bit of a glimpse into this um, upbringing. So the, the lands of the Wiradjuri were invaded right around the same time that the commons of Clare's parish of Helpston were being enclosed and they were appropriated to largely to run sheep uh, for the wool that was sent back to the mills of the mother country. And um, this poem is um, one of three that I discussed from her 2018 collection, Walk Back Over. And uh, I bring um, uh, Lane's work into conversation with the poetry of non-Indigenous, in fact, Anglo-Celtic writer and scholar Anne Elvey. Um, again, like Lilburn approaching this difficult task um, um, of decolonization from the perspective of the coloniser. So Walk Back Over is Lane's um, second collection of poetry. Uh, her first collection was called Dark Secrets After Dreaming, AD 1887 to 1961. And there she draws on family stories to disclose a hidden history of Wiradjuri women in particular, as she puts it, from campfire to camp captivity to confinement and through colonisation. Um, telling the tragic story of early invasion of the Wiradjuri lands and the institutionalization of children, the failure of the settlers to read and understand the land 
which has led to really terrible ecological degradation in Australia, including um, the fact that Australia has the highest mammalian extinction rate uh, in the world, for example. Um, so Lean observes that the book also speaks to the resilience of Aboriginal people and especially women. Um, so in the second collection, she continues the, this work of walking back over the past in order to recall a different history from that which prevails in the national narratives of the dominant settler culture. And he, here she's exploring how contested memories of the past get voiced in the present and how this can sort of enable or also foreclose different pathways into the future. So um, Lynn tells us she's of mixed Anglo-Celtic, Aboriginal, possibly Chinese heritage. She was schooled by Catholic nuns, and she's also very much a participant in sort of wider settler society, she's teaching creative writing at the University of Melbourne, in fact, at the moment. So she's got the advantage often enjoyed by members of my minority groups of being able to see through the lens of more than one cultural prism. And... Um, in many of the poems in Walk Back Over, um, she exploits the potential of uh, modern English lyric poetry um, as it, you know, has come down to us, in fact, from Wordsworth and the Romantics, to claim a voice with which to write back against what she calls white fella narratives. So the poem that you've just read from has a kind of elegiac quality, um, but the other poems I discuss actually foreground the continuing vibrancy of Aboriginal country and culture. And um, more recently, she's actually edited a really important collection of Australian First Nations poems called Guayu, which means for all times in English. And many of the poems that are written in or include words from Indigenous languages, so it's very much a celebration of survivance and recovery. And this includes, importantly, the regeneration of Indigenous languages and the ways of seeing and speaking the land that are embedded in them. Okay. Thank you. And now for our last question. Your book underlines the insufficiency of poetry and the need for transformation beyond the page. You've already discussed um, the prospect of social transformation, I think, um, when you were discussing uh, mythopoetic potential in the Romantic period. So my question for you, Kate, is how did working on this book change your conceptions of activism and perhaps your own praxis beyond the page? Thank you. Well, I think I need to stress, first of all, that the, the call for an ecopoesis beyond the page doesn't mean that I consider the work of words to be inherently deficient. Um, you know, I would hate um, my poet, you know, friends and colleagues to uh, to think that I'm kind of running down poetry. Um, so I really want to say clearly here that poetic language has its own irreducible and incalculable significance. Um, but uh, the, the deficiency, um, it, you know, if there is one, I, I, I came to realise, probably lies more with the practice of literary criticism, um, especially in our own moment of, you know, really profound socio-ecological crisis. 
So eco-criticisms has certainly pushed the envelope of the discipline in mainstreaming ecological and eco-justice concerns in the literature classroom, and includingly importantly in schools, although I think that transfer is probably only just beginning. But methodologically, it's, it's remained largely bound to the historical hermeneutic methods of literary criticism as usual. And I sort of, you know, as I was writing this book, you know, I began to feel really hemmed in by this. And this is why each chapter ends with a consideration of, well, you know, how would the this eco-poetic art of resistance, how would that get translated um, into a kind of wider eco-poetic practice um, of kind of um, socio-ecological transformation? So um, I'm really interested in the emergence of various forms of empirical eco-criticism that are using social science methods to try and better understand the actual resonance and effects of reading different kinds of texts in different contexts. And I see this move beyond the confines of traditional humanities methods to collaborate more closely with researchers in social and also natural sciences and also to incorporate some of their methods. I see this as key to the emergence of the environmental humanities as a genuinely inter or transdisciplinary field rather than just as a kind of multidisciplinary gathering. But in my own work, I'm particularly interested in getting more involved um, with ethnography and in particular um, what's become known as multi-species ethnography and bringing to that my own sort of historical hermeneutic lens. So looking at the ways in which earlier texts and traditions are getting reimagined in the co-creation of multi-species sites of recovery and regeneration. Uh, so simple sympoietic refugia of kin making as Donna Haraway puts it and just as a footnote there um, sympoiesis is also um, something advocated by um, the uh, German romantic Friedrich Schlegel although he's using it somewhat differently from Haraway. So in my current research um, at the intersection of sort of environmental literary and religious studies, I'm particularly interested in creative initiatives where the work of words gets wedded to other modes of eco-poetic practice. And um, so, for example, I'm, I'm looking at a, um, a really inspired project called Aftermath Weeds and Wilding, which is underway at the Anglican Church of St. James's Piccadilly, um, which is a, it's a gold award-winning eco-church in the heart of London, um, where um, this a rather marvellous um, trio of an agricultural scientist, an artist and a poet are uh, working with the kind of wider community um, to, to actually, to sell, first of all, celebrate the weeds that actually grew up in the church after it was bombed during the Second World War, but um, kind of more generally to, to, to consider human interrelationships with plants and, and particularly plants that we might construe as weeds and to actually question the whole kind of construction, the whole notion of the weed. Um, and um, to, to, to take this um, take this kind of history um, of, of disaster, in fact, the, the bombing of the church um, as an opportunity to explore sort of multi-species, interspecies um, ways of, of forms of recovery, regeneration and, and resilience um, in our troubled present. 
Fascinating. Well, I'll be very curious to follow up on that in the coming years and hear more about that and read more about that. Thank you so much, Kate, for being on the show today. It was really a delight and privilege to speak with you. And I wish you a wonderful end of year and a warm and cozy winter. Thank you very much.